Hey, remember the old Warner Brothers cartoons with Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and all the other characters like Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote? Remember how sometimes one of them would run through a wall and leave a silhouette in their exact shape? Now imagine a scenario where you come across that hole in the wall several days later. You'd be able to tell exactly who ran through it. You weren't there to see Wile E. Coyote run through the wall, but you'd know it was him because the negative space he left behind is in his exact shape. A mentor of mine, a career intelligence man, gave me that analogy for trying to piece together the underworld of mobsters and spies. He used it to describe the work of the best analysts, people who take every piece of open source and classified information they have access to on whatever they're investigating and try and form a picture. They use discoverable details to carve and define the space around the mystery or unknown element that they're trying to discern. The unknown can become known by defining the space around which it exists, in some cases with near-absolute certainty. Even if you weren't there to witness the coyote running through the wall, you'd know it was him because of the details that carved his shape. And if you know the coyote's nature, if you know that all he does is chase that roadrunner, then you can make a near-perfect guess that the room with the hole in the wall and all the Acme boxes piled in the corner belong to him. That's what it's like to piece together a century of history on organized crime and intelligence operations. To be honest, it's super tedious. One has to love details, as I do. It's puzzle work, another favorite pastime, where you have thousands of pieces, but no picture ahead of time. And as you piece it together, you not only have no clear idea what the final image is going to be, you can't even tell which pieces are the hard edges that carve the silhouette until they fit into one another and form. It's very dynamic work, and one where, if you're really committed to it, you never stop learning. The picture is always changing, refining, becoming more and more clear over time. I wasn't there when any of the stuff I'm sharing with you happened, and most likely, neither were you. But that doesn't mean we can't come to know it. We can, through the details, define the negative space. So back to the Warner Brothers cartoon analogy. The wall with the hole in it is our history, what we think we know about mobsters and spies. And the whole, the negative space, what we can come to know by filling in all the details around its silhouette, is the money. What we're calling the second economy. The economy of the underworld, which is driven by vice. Its architecture was designed to remain unseen, 
as it runs from dirty banks to offshore havens through luxury item loopholes and industry launders with endpoints in Wall Street, Hollywood, and Silicon Valley, among others. And by building the second economy in this way, the men who run it, who create the profits off our societal misery, have been able to remain untouchable. We learned in our last episode that this was Meyer Lansky's goal when he created the offshore laundromat to escape the long arm of the taxman who had found his associate, Al Capone. Meyer built the underworld's economic architecture so well that even today, when a syndicate makes their money off prostitution, gambling, drugs and arm trafficking, nuclear material smuggling, even counterfeit cigarettes, it's almost impossible for law enforcement to get their hands on that money. Meyer's laundromat works. That is, as long as we can't piece together enough details to define the negative space in that wall. The silhouettes of billionaire criminals holding their big bags of blood-soaked cash. Let's return for a moment to the details in our first episode and give a sneak peek of the bigger picture, the negative space ahead of us, from which we will carve several silhouettes. The unknown we're working towards will be revealed, defined, and confirmed in the details around the two mob hits, which opened this whole series. We started by asking whether the 1985 assassinations of Big Paul Castellano, head of the Gambino crime family, and Ev Agron, KGB asset and head of the Russian mafia, were connected. What we're driving towards is whether or not our big Cold War enemy at the time invaded us via our underworld. Let me say that again, because it's not only the key to illuminating the darkness in the world beneath us, but it is an unknown that can become known. It's discoverable. We are asking, did our biggest nation-state adversary, our enemy, 40 years ago, at the height of the Cold War, invade us via our underworld? Did the KGB send its gangsters, who were also intelligence operatives, to our shores to infiltrate and hijack our own crime syndicate? Did the Soviet Union invade our democracy from our underworld up? Okay, so now you know. The goal of this work is for me to share with you the details that I found that make this narrative a possibility and walk with you through history 
in order to have the context to shore up that theory with facts. It's going to take us five seasons to fully get there. But we're at a critical midpoint in season one. And this is where I lean over to fasten your seatbelt for the roller coaster ahead. I promise we will all survive the ride. On the mob side of our world of mobsters and spies, we've talked the origins of organized crime. You've met the young entrepreneurs, Lansky and Luciano, who capitalized on the Volstead Act, prohibition, to build an empire. You've met their mentor, Arnold Rothstein, his business partner, Johnny Torrio, and Torrio's protege, Al Capone. We've walked through how, after Rothstein's assassination, Meyer Lansky took the combination, the bootlegging, gambling, and prostitution rackets of Rothstein and Torrio, and turned it into the syndicate. This led to the creation of the organizational structure for both the five families out of New York, under Lucky Luciano's leadership, and the outfit out of Chicago, Capone's territory. And we learned how the man who hunted Rothstein, Torrio, and Capone, Elmer Irie, and his T-men at the Treasury Department, levied the first big blow to the syndicate when they took down Al Capone, which never would have happened without the preeminent mind in intelligence, Elizabeth Friedman, the woman whose vision and work on the Capone case birthed another organization. Working with the T-Men, Elizabeth created the operational structure for what would become the most formidable spy agency on the planet, the NSA. Elizabeth so terrified those gangsters that with Capone's conviction and the end of Prohibition soon after, Meyer ran off to Switzerland to help create the global laundromat of offshore banking. This was the way to hide the syndicate's money from the T-men. He simply moved it all out of Uncle Sam's grasp. Like proper pirates, the syndicate corrupted the population of an entire nation-state, us, in order to swindle their treasure, then buried it on tiny islands of paradise spattered across their smuggling routes. From the beginning, and especially to this day, the underworld is, and always has been, about the money. That's it. All the complexity in this century-long story, all the ins and outs, are about the money. The treasure. Pumping through the world beneath us, which profoundly impacts all of our lives in ways previously unseen. And maybe because I earned my bruises with this subject matter, exposing the global laundromat for years on Twitter, of all places, I can already hear the pushback on one of the silhouettes at the heart of this history, as told so far. The black outline of Al Capone in Elizabeth Friedman's work, in her discovery 
an investigation of one of the syndicate's largest front organizations, Consolidated Exporters Corporation, or Conexco. It's true that some of Elizabeth's work remains classified, locked away from people like you and me. But there is much now in the light. I encourage everyone to read the two books on Elizabeth and William, which I found most helpful and illuminating. The Woman Who Smashed Codes by Jason Fagone and A Life in Code by G. Stewart Smith. And if you really want to learn about the Freedmans, dig into the NSA archives. Then go visit the George Marshall Foundation, where they donated all their work, including Elizabeth's memoirs. The foundation itself could use your support. But if you want to learn about how Elizabeth's work related to and impacted the syndicate from the perspective of organized crime, then you have to dig into different resources. Tracing that history requires integrating an endless amount of information from mafia books, Senate archives on organized crime, court cases involving key characters in the syndicate, and historical texts on law enforcement. One of the best of the latter being a 2010 biography on Elmer Irie and the T-Men by journalist and author Robert Folsom. In short, you have to delve equally into the three silos of historical resources that cover this world. Intelligence, law enforcement, and organized crime. And in that well of resources, after our last episode, I am likely rankling writers and historians in all three silos. Some heads might be exploding. That's okay. You see, for the mafia buffs, I'm supposed to credit Luciano with creating the org chart for the American Mafia after the first commission meeting in 1931 in Chicago. Not credit Lansky with it in 1929 in Atlantic City. And I'm supposed to say the commission formed the five families and named Luciano chairman of the bosses, not hand that mantle over to something called the syndicate with Lansky as chair. I mean, if we were really to go deep into it, I'd be telling you about something called Group 7 and get into all the division of territories that spun out of that. But leaving out or subverting the history of the combination and then the 1929 creation of the syndicate in Atlantic City, with the top-down order having Lansky as chairman, is literally leaving out the money, the business of organized crime. Handing everything to the Italians is the story that the Italians tell about themselves. And historians have recorded on their behalf, frankly. And this is also the version that law enforcement will tell, who focused so heavily on the Italians because that's where they made their bones and buttered their bread. I'm not saying the commission wasn't real, their first meeting in Chicago never happened, or that Cosa Nostra was a secondary racket. Not at all. I'm just saying that has always been and only been the visible side of this criminal world beneath us. But it's not the story the blood money tells. It's just not. The real order of the underworld 
is the money. Always the money. And the entire operation was designed to keep the money from ever being seen. Where the business of mobsters, studied and chased by law enforcement, intersects with the business of intelligence, you can both cut the fine edges on that silhouette and paint in its blackness with the color of money. Elizabeth's work for the T-Men, decrypting the coded messages between the rum-running ships and their benefactors, the biggest being Conexco, was about hunting down the money. Not only was Elmer Irie's Treasury Department responsible for enforcing prohibition, it was doing so from the angle of the investigation and prosecution of financial crime. And the best way to find those crimes was to expose the illegal operation that was making all that money. Now, Elizabeth did this other very unique thing at the time. With the details, she was inspecting, uncovering, decrypting. In order to really define the negative space, the unknown, unseen, business behind the rum runners, the ships, she stepped back and took in the bigger picture. You gotta step back. You can't see the outline of what you're trying to define if you're staying inside the black hole of it. And we need to do that as well in trying to interpret what she had found and what she testified to in that New Orleans courtroom, among others, about the syndicate behind the rum runners, of which Conexco was the biggest front company. We have to do what Elizabeth did with the mountain of details she was discovering. She pulled back. She defined the operation of Conexco, the players, the shipping routes, the land logistics, the contracts, the destinations of the exports, the bank accounts. She mapped out a smuggling empire. And one of the names in that Conexco case that she helped Elmer I rebuild is where we have to pull back and see the bigger picture when it comes to connecting her work to the syndicate. We have to bring our knowledge of the world of organized crime into this detail in order to see the world that held the room where Elizabeth found the wall into which the Conexco silhouette was carved. Here is that detail. Not only were several of the Conexco defendants associates of Al Capone, but one of them was Capone's own brother. That's why Al Capone's attorney faced off against Elizabeth in the courtroom. So pull back. Lean into the indisputable truths you already know, as does every historian and law enforcement official who studied or investigated the American Mafia, and ask yourself, do you really believe that Al Capone's own brother was working for anyone other than Al Capone? Is that how the Mafia works? That a boss's own blood brother goes and works for a rival, survives that betrayal, then gets his boss brother's high-priced attorney for trial? You gullible enough to believe that? 
We know Torio built Capone. And we know Rostein bankrolled Torio. And we know that the combination fostered Lansky and Luciano's bootlegging and vice empire. And we know that this combination, Torio and Rostein, fostered Lansky and Luciano's bootlegging and vice empire. And we know, with Rostein's death, the survivors carved it all up and plopped Lansky on top of the money pile. The very financial crime architecture that Elmer Irie employed Elizabeth Friedman to hunt and expose. And so she did. The syndicate's biggest front company was Conexco. That silhouette in the wall that she carved, ultimately, it was the syndicate's. And behind the shadow of Al Capone was Meyer Lansky, the tiny gangster in the fedora, holding the big bag of blood-soaked cash. It is in the business fronts that the T-Men exposed where we get to the heart of the human misery from which organized crime profits. Among the six law enforcement agencies that Elizabeth worked across with her signal intelligence group was the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. The involvement of the DEA in Elizabeth's work wasn't only because alcohol, at the time, was classified as an illegal substance. It's because there were other products being smuggled by our bootlegger ships, the Export-Import Empire of Conexco, and a whole host of other front companies trafficked in hard narcotics coming in from Asia and Europe. Elizabeth even once got wrapped up in a fascinating case involving Gordon Lim, a Chinese millionaire who ran a precious gems business, as in diamonds and emeralds, out of British Columbia. Turned out, he was a drug and arms smuggler whose opium product was ravaging families and communities across North America. And it was a matter of diplomatic importance that Elizabeth helped the Canadians with this case. Not long before, we, the United States, had a rum-running case go terribly wrong with our northern neighbors. The Coast Guard, working on intelligence that Elizabeth gathered, chased and then sunk a large ship that appeared to be Canadian. And a young Canadian seaman was killed. The case is known as the I Am Alone for the name of the ship and decrypted intercepts. It was perhaps the biggest upset in the history of diplomatic relations between our two nations. And of course, Elizabeth was not only at the heart of it, she helped prove that the ship was not, in fact, Canadian, but owned by American gangsters, which gave the US Coast Guard the right to hunt it down. While she was investigating it, I Am Alone was one of the few cases where Elizabeth turned to the only cryptanalyst whose skills equaled her own to help her crack the codes. Her husband, William. The Customs Agency Service, the Alcohol Tax Division, and the Coast Guard were chewing their pencils, racking their brains and getting nowhere. Since my husband was so well-known in the world of communications companies, I asked him to ascertain, if possible, 
the identities of the New York cable addresses. He learned that both these addresses were used for one Joseph H. Ferran, Hotel McAlpine, New York City. Thus, the evidence piled up slowly and painfully. The vessel I'm Alone had been owned and operated entirely by Americans and was simply masking under Canadian registry and the British flag, but that the money invested was purely American. Now, we don't have the names of the gangsters involved in the I Am Alone case. The official records carry only the names of the business fronts. But we do know that their businesses were based in Manhattan, solidly in Lansky and Luciano's territory. And that, thanks to the press around Elizabeth and her role in cracking the Conexco racket, the I Am Alone case brought direct threats to her life. Our gangsters put out a hit on her by name. They did not tell me in so many words, but I got, by implication, their feeling that I should be a bit careful during this trial. This feeling was reinforced at the end of the case when I was told in so many words that if ever in my battle against smugglers I would have needed a personal guard, it would have been at the time of this incident. Although Elizabeth's evidence was indisputable in proving that the businessmen who owned the I Am Alone were Americans, Canada was not quite appeased. There was still a dead Canadian sailor on the Coast Guard's hands, and the press in Canada had a field day with it. So, Elizabeth's later cooperation with the Mounties in bringing down the precious gems and drug-smuggling kingpin, Gordon Lim, smoothed over the relationship for good. Our girl just couldn't stop saving America. Then, there was the case that Irie had been on for years, tracking the drug empire behind Arnold Rothstein. Rothstein was so well protected from his control over the entire political realm that neither Elmer Irie or the New York State law enforcement could touch him. Plus, Rothstein was the brain. He had built an impenetrable business. Law enforcement knew he was running a drug smuggling empire. I mean, he had all those ships. But they couldn't nail him on it. Then, on that fateful night in November 1926, when Arnold Rothstein took two bullets in his gut and later died in hospital, Elmer Irie got his break. Thanks to Lucky Luciano. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Remember a couple episodes back where we talked about how both Lansky and Luciano sought out Arnold Rothstein at the onset of Prohibition? Well, while Meyer 
made the offer to have their crew run Rostin's bootlegging operation, since Rostin had the international relationships with tycoons who would be suppliers, Lucky had an additional offer. Drugs. This wasn't just about being economical with the ships. Rostin could do for Luciano and Lansky what no other boss could. He could bring impeccable bank credit into the drug trade. Before Arnold Rostin, wannabe traffickers like Luciano would have to pony their money up front to international suppliers. But with Rostin, those same suppliers could send their product on a short-term credit basis because of the banks who backed him. It was a transformative moment in the history of smuggling and organized the underworld into a cohesive business enterprise. Author Leo Katcher confirms that it was Luciano who brought drugs into Rostin's empire. And one can't help but see the criminal brilliance of Meyer Lansky behind Luciano's move. On the day that fell between the two bullets fired into Rostin and the moment when he perished in hospital, refusing to identify the gunman, Lucky Luciano went to Rostin's office. You see, the brain kept impeccable records on his empire. From the names of politicians he owned to the distilleries in Europe that supplied his booze to the unfilled orders from opium overlords in Asia and kingpins with headquarters in Holland, Belgium, and France. Arnold Rostin kept books on it all. And Luciano was in his office grabbing it and ran smack into NYPD blue. (laughs) The cops nabbed Lucky and the two thugs he brought with him on, quote, suspicious character charges, which, of course, didn't stick. But what they bungled their badges into were file cabinets full of documents and other addresses where other documents were kept. And in the detailed, impeccable books of Arnold Rothstein were the layers of corruption and influence that built the underworld of the 1920s, with thousands of silhouettes carved into the walls of Tammany Hall, law enforcement, and Gold Coast mansions. LaGuardia's law clerk summed it up this way, quote, Rothstein alive had been an unsavory article. Rothstein dead was a calamity. When all the files were turned over to justice, Everyone within earshot of a politician and tycoon was listening for the self-inflicted gunshots. The records made their way to Irie's desk, where he found the myriad of corporations owned and operated by Arnold Rothstein. 
among the art galleries, jewelry, and antique shops, Elmer Irie found his holy grail cipher. Rothmere Mortgage Corporation. That was the business front for Rothstein's drug smuggling empire. A mortgage company at 45 West 57th Street. New York real estate is one hell of a drug. Before we wrap this chapter on Elizabeth and the T-Men, hunting our gangsters in the Prohibition era, there is one more detail to note. It starts with the line that Capone's attorney dropped when questioning Elizabeth on the witness stand during the Conexco case. Let's listen to that transcript reenactment again. How shall I address you, madam or miss? I am Mrs. Friedman. Before you could properly translate these symbols, somebody had to tell you that it was symbols in reference to the liquor transportation. Oh, no. I might receive symbols related to murder or narcotics. The same symbols that these gentlemen use to mean what you say, whiskey, beer, position, could not have been made up by people in code for transportation of women from Europe? No. Not with the meaning given here in I move that all testimony from this lady be stricken out. Now, why would Capone's attorney mention people communicating in code about the, quote, transportation of women from Europe? What type of knowledge well is he drawing from here to come up with that example, even as a deflection to use in his cross-examination? Well, we can't know for certain how or why he did. But we do know for certain that Johnny Torrio, the man that Elmer I. recalled the, quote, father of American gangsterdom, controlled a massive prostitution market in Chicago, which he then handed over to his protege, Al Capone, who then expanded it completely, wiping out any competitors. And there is plenty of history on how within the surge of immigrants from the turn of the century through the era of prohibition, many European women found themselves trafficked into prostitution. That tale is as old as the profession, unfortunately, and continues to this day. So, there, in the cross-examination of Elizabeth Friedman by Al Capone's own personal attorney, we get a detail, a peek into another profit center in Capone's, and therefore the syndicate's, empire of vice. Trafficked women. I said early on that there were oceans of blood that birthed the laundromat, the second economy of the world beneath us. I wasn't only being literal. To understand this world means to see that the bloodshed wasn't just from Capone's Tommy gun massacres or the targeted assassinations ordered by Luciano, Meyer, and their gang. The pain and misery that built the second economy comes from the human cost of organized crime. 
Mafia movies are great on selling you that the mob only hurts itself, that the bloodshed comes from them killing one another. But that's not the story the money tells. The victims of the gangster's business model are not one another. The bodies on which their empire is built, the human lives piled up underneath them to lift their bank accounts into the stratosphere, are, and always have been, us. They profit off our misery. That's what vice is. That's the empire. Human misery fuels the second economy. Your brother, dead from an overdose. Your sister, used in the rape trade. Your father, lost to a gambling addiction. Your child, shot in the crossfire. Us, they prey on us. The greater our suffering, the bigger their wallets. Until one day, they're an oligarch with a media empire, two yachts, a bevy of trafficked models, diamond mines in Africa, and a half-billion-dollar fake da Vinci stashed in the closet. On March 22, 1933, former Tammany Hall Democrat President Franklin Roosevelt signed an amendment to the Volstead Act, allowing the production and sale of light alcohol, beer and wine. The 18th Amendment was fully repealed by the end of the year. Booze was back. For America's gangsters, who had plenty of pull within politics to have foreknowledge, if not a hand in, the coming end to prohibition, the market's transition back to legal alcohol was a secondary concern. Why? Well, first, the 13 years of international business development during Prohibition, had cemented their smuggling infrastructure. As Elizabeth herself adeptly summed up, I'm afraid smuggling is here to stay. Prohibition taught the smugglers high-powered methods of organization. They are now turning what they learned in smuggling liquor to account for other means of livelihood. The ingenuity of the smuggler has also now been turned to narcotics perfumes, jewelry, and even pinto beans on the Texas border. Business would continue. But first, some big stuff had to be sorted out among the Italians. It was time to end the era of the mustache peats. The Castellamarese War raged through New York City from February 1930 through April 1931. Historically, it's traditionally told as the territorial endgame between the Masseria and the Maranzano gangs, the Mustache Beats. And while this version of the war is an accurate encapsulation of that moment, it fails to step back and see the bigger picture. The capo di tutti capi of the Italians who emerged from that war was Lucky Luciano. 
and the commission that was formed for the Italians under his leadership was the beginning of the Five Families. In the early 1930s, the names had not yet evolved into the Five Families as we'd come to know them by the 1980s, when Big Paul Castellano ruled over the Gambinos and Fat Tony Salerno over the Genovese. As organized by Luciano in the 30s, they were first the Luciano family, headed by Lucky, with Fido Genovese and Frank Costello as underbosses, running Manhattan. The Gagliano family, which would become Lucchese. The Manganos, with Albert Anastasia as underboss, running most of Brooklyn, including the waterfront, where Russian mafia boss F.C. Agron would eventually land the Profaci family, and the Bananos, headed by Joseph Bonanno, the youngest of the five original bosses. Some of the boroughs were divvied up between the five families, but at the time, Manhattan was Lucky's alone. That was the seat of all power, and he earned it. Now, there was one lingering aspect of the Arnold Rothstein Elmer Irie era that came across Lucky's plate just as prohibition was repealed. Arthur Flegenheimer, a.k.a. Dutch Schultz. Remember him? This was an associate of Lansky's who, by most historians, had ordered the hit on Arnold Rothstein and somehow survived giving that order within the ranks of the underworld. Dutch was being hounded by New York District Attorney and hard-nosed prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. Since Elmer Irie and the T-Men had shown law enforcement that the way to put gangsters away was through tax evasion, Thomas Dewey was hard after several of Meyer and Lucky's associates, including Waxy Gordon, and Dutch Schultz. And Dutch, ever the psychopath, was cracking under the pressure and wanted to assassinate Dewey. He went to Lucky for permission, even converting from Judaism to Catholicism in an attempt to curry favor, and was denied by Lucky. No doubt after consulting with Meyer. Lucky and Meyer knew Dutch very well. They understood that saying no to him was not enough and that a mob hit on New York's top prosecutor, Thomas Dewey, would bring a world of hurt onto the commission and up into the syndicate in ways too incalculable to determine. So, they did what every great godfather must do. They had Dutch taken care of. On October 23, 1935, at the Palace Chop House restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, at a moment when Dutch was relieving himself in the men's room, Bugsy's boys of Murder, Inc. came in through the back and burst into the dining room guns ablazing. They mowed through Dutch's entourage at the table and kept on going through the front door. Dutch 
sauntered out from the men's room, holding his side. He made his way to his table, where some bodies were strewn and others were gone, having given chase to Bugsy's boys, only to collapse from their wounds later, and sat down. The man who had two bullets pumped into Arnold Rothstein so that Meyer Lansky could take over Rothstein's empire sat at his table and ordered an ambulance for supper. Arthur Dutch Schultz Flegenheimer died the following day in hospital after receiving his last rites from a Catholic priest. The years between the end of Prohibition and our entry into the Second World War were dynamic for our couple, Elizabeth and William Friedman, and not necessarily in a good way. With the explosion of cipher machines, both William and Elizabeth could see that their world would soon change. Their science was based in analog work, with the mind and the pencil being the tools. Soon, the machines would take over. So, for William especially, there was a drive to preserve, for history, what they had created. And so he began his quest to create a private library of their work and memorialize the science of cryptanalysis. But he found that project almost an impossible problem to solve. First, Colonel George Fabian was perishing. William reached out to him about their original work, which Fabian still refused to relinquish. They had kept some professional correspondence going throughout the years, on William's behalf, solely for the purpose of getting access to his and Elizabeth's original papers. But, in the end, Fabian had burned most of what the Freedmen's were forced to leave behind. And then he died. As author Jason Fagone put it, quote, Fabian had chosen to go out in a flame of self-immolation, a Viking funeral of documents. Then there was Herbert Yardley, an old associate of the Freedmen's, reaching back to their days at Riverbank. While Elizabeth was off working for the T-Men, William continued his work for the Army Signal Corps, or SIS. He had been involved in what was called the Black Chamber before it was disbanded in 1929. At the time, the Black Chamber was the core of our government's cryptographic and signal intelligence services. And William worked there with Yardley until the Secretary of State, Stimson, shut them down under the claim that we, the United States, shouldn't be prying in on the secrets of foreign countries. It pissed Yardley off. So, he broke the secrets and published a book on the Black Chamber. It was the first real glimpse that the U.S. public and anyone else who chose to read it had into the secret world of code-breaking spies. A book that William declared, quote, 
all a lie. Yardley had embellished a lot to make things seem sexy, to sell a book. The collapse of facts into fantasy was an emotional and spiritual blow to William. The work he'd sacrificed so much for and believed so much in, his own sense of patriotism, was being assaulted by his former colleague. It was intolerable for Elizabeth's gentle man of honor. And then, a new machine crashed into the world of cryptanalysis. Or at least, the silhouette of one had. In 1939, the Japanese began using a cipher machine, unknown to and unseen by anyone else. They used it to conduct their most sensitive diplomatic traffic. Now, SIS had known their old cipher machine and named it Red. This new one received the name Purple, and cracking it was a task that fell onto William's shoulders. It was near impossible, but he did it. And that story is one that unlocks a whole trove of new secrets around how we, the United States, eventually entered into the war. Staring into the code of purple, into those cables, meant staring into the heart of the Japanese government as they drove headlong into their relationship with Europe's fascist regimes. Although not in the army for physical combat, William was at the tip of the War Department's spear. In fact, beyond the tip, inside the darkness of a silhouette that we as emotional and spiritual beings were never meant to define. To do this work and succeed, William battled with his intellect, with sheer genius, not only to survive, but to try and save millions of innocent souls. He was staring into pure evil. Imagine doing that. Imagine seeing the cruelest side of humanity as it calculated its attacks, its moves, on the chessboard of mass death. Our gentle man of honor had to hold all of that in his mind. Finding a place to store it after decrypting and processing it as secrets he couldn't even share with his beloved wife. And Elizabeth knew something was profoundly wrong, but she couldn't ask what. She couldn't ask why because of her own honor. All she could do was hold his hand and be there for him. As William fell into the deep, sad well of humanity's darkest night. In 1936, 
a year after preserving Thomas Dewey's life from the psychopathic musings of Dutch Schultz, Lucky Luciano was tried and convicted by Dewey for his prostitution rackets. Try as they might, Thomas Dewey's office couldn't get Lucky on the drug smuggling. That racket would continue to grow while Luciano was in prison and would continue to cause conflicts between the five families as they evolved from their early bosses into the next generation, which would bring in a young man on the rise under Anastasia's leadership named Paul Castellano. At the time of Luciano's incarceration, the American Italians were keeping an eye on developments back in their homeland. Across the Atlantic, the Prime Minister, Benito Mussolini, was invading Ethiopia, committing one of the earliest expansionist acts of a future Axis power. Between the Japanese and Mussolini, the groundwork for the Second World War was upon us. And it's something that Lansky and the oldest members of his crew, his Jewish childhood friends, saw coming for years. They knew all about Old World anti-Semitism. Nearly every one of their families had fled a pogrom. At Prohibition's end, while the Italian bootleggers were busy forming their own five families, the Jews were busy punching American Nazis in the fucking face. Meyer and Longy's Wilman, with the Jewish boxers they had used as muscle, since running crap games in the streets, were infiltrating the German-American Bund. They were disrupting their rallies, choking out their businesses, using leverage with politicians to enact new laws, like FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and relationships with news media moguls to run negative articles about Hitler and the Bund. And then... There was the favorite pastime of literally shoving the Bund's propaganda pamphlets down their own throats. These were the first anti-fascists, and they were really, really good at it. Still, the adversary was stronger. I promise to tell more of this story. It is the only moment in the history of all these gangsters that any one of them ever did anything without a profit motive. Hitler, as Fuhrer, was well aware of who was attacking his precious American Bund and their leader, Fritz Kuhn. Rest assured, Lansky and Zwillman were so effective at disrupting Hitler's American boys, it brings a new context to this infamous 1939 quote from Adolf, two years before we'd entered the war. He said that we, the United States, were, quote, the worst governed country in the world with Jews who controlled the industry and the press, end quote. Now, I don't know for certain, but I think Meyer might have gotten under that monster's skin. Good for him. But little did either Meyer or Hitler know, in hours before the war, that their previous and future opponent was about to enter their realms 
can change everything. Elizabeth Friedman was moving into her final act as the greatest American intelligence officer ever to apply her extraordinary gifts for our nation. She was about to, once again, save the free world. This time, under the Department of the Navy, a department which, during her efforts, brought on two new assets and all of their resources to defeat fascism and win the war. Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano. The underworld of mobsters and spies was about to intersect in a new way for the first time, which would change the game forever. They were about to become partners. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to season one, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and our sit-down episodes on Thursdays wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.